You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. With the inauguration of Joe Biden as President of the United States in January of this year, the tumultuous America First foreign policy mandate of the Trump administration finally came to an end. For many of America's traditional allies in the liberal international order, the past four years under President Trump have been a difficult period to say the least. Marked by a retrenched global presence, disruptions to free trade, strained relations, and even moonlights with authoritarian regimes from a once reliable and steadfast ally. No doubt recognizing this, Biden would waste no time in heralding America is back signing executive orders, returning the U.S. to the previously abandoned Paris Accords mere moments after being sworn in. But one can't help but wonder if Biden's plans for a renewed American presence in the world can ever erase the sting of America first. What is the Biden doctrine of foreign policy? And how does Joe Biden seek to build bridges after four years of America building walls? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Professor Aaron Ettinger. Aaron is a professor here with the Department of Political Science at Carleton University, specializing in global governance and American foreign policy. Thank you for joining me today, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me once again. Oh, I'm always glad to have you. Robust participation from the department's always good, but you're always reliable when it comes to that. So the inauguration of Joe Biden as the president of the United States just a little over two months ago marked the official end of the Trump administration's four-year era of America First foreign policy. Now, much has been written, obviously, about the differing approaches of Trump and Biden, but I'm interested, in terms of foreign policy and America's place in the world, what's the Biden doctrine shaping up to look like? To me, it looks like an inverted neo-Trumanite foreign policy. You heard it here first, folks, an inverted neo-Trumanite foreign policy. And I say that because there's some interesting resemblances between what Biden is doing and what Harry Truman sort of shaped up doing in 1947. So, you know, let's go back to 47 for a second. There's Harry Truman giving a speech to Congress and he says, quote, it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. Of course, that's code for communist revolutionaries supported by Moscow. Now, today, Biden is talking about rallying free peoples and democratic countries in order to rebuff authoritarian governments. Now, I call it an inverted neo-Trumanite foreign policy because, you know, it kind of starts from within the United States. Biden's first priority is democratic reconstruction at home, and then comes a more collaborative relationship with democratic allies and partners. And then finally, it's about mustering those capabilities and partners and allies uh, towards you know, our rebuff of authoritarian countries. Now, this is not containment in the way that the Truman Doctrine turned into or the NSC 68 uh, suggested, but it's a desire here in, you know, 2021 for more concerted action among democracies to counter global influence of the new authoritarian capitalist states. So there is something old, there is something new here. Uh, Diplomatically, I think we can expect Biden's foreign policy to be more collaborative, at least in the early goings. It'll be much more accommodating towards allies, but not necessarily deferential. 
Now, again, it's only been two months, but so far, Biden and his foreign policy team have said all the right things. They have made foreign policy statements that recite the following phrases, you know, America is back, diplomacy is back, alliances are back. Now it's still in the early going, so all of this is very aspirational, but so far we've seen, you know, interesting signals being sent, whether it's at the Munich Security Conference back in February 2021, Biden gave a speech to the State Department, which Donald Trump never did. In early March, an interim national uh, security strategic guidance was issued that starts to formalize these things in big policy. And so we're seeing the inklings of a foreign policy program that has democratic countries and democratic ideals at the center in order to provide a counterpoint to the new authoritarian countries out there in the world. I definitely agree. There's this appetite throughout the global community for America to be back, so to speak. But I can't help but wonder about the damage done by the America First doctrine. You know, what was the impact of the Trump administration on the liberal international order? And what sort of things do the Biden administration needs to do moving forward to kind of mend those strained relationships with uh, longtime allies who have really over the past four years been at odds with the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, Trump showed that you don't know what you got till it's gone, right? You know, the Western world, certainly the transatlantic alliance relied and still relies heavily on American leadership, largely because no other country out there can provide the kind of public goods and leadership and resources needed to make, you know, these elements of the liberal and international order work. However, you know, and however much countries may begrudge American leadership, and sometimes it's unilateralism, that kind of leadership is a necessary feature for making the liberal international order effective. You know, Trump's shenanigans out there on the world stage made collaboration extremely difficult, even in areas where countries agreed, right? World leaders didn't want to be seen by their own electorates on side with Donald Trump. Now, the system held because willing countries within the liberal international order tried to hold the line, but the result was a real kind of lost four years. And that's really the legacy of the America First doctrine. Biden, for his part, is going to have to do a ton of reassurance in order to bring American partners and allies back into the fold, however large their appetite might be. Now, we're likely to see a whole lot of trepidation out there among American allies, especially in Europe, uh, because they've been stung by the Trump presidency, right? It's always possible that another Trump might return to the White House, right? Now, this leaves us in an interesting paradox where American allies want and need U.S. leadership, but they also need proof that, you know, the United States really is back, that diplomacy is back, that alliances really are back. So Biden might have to make concessions here and there in the early going uh, as gestures of you know, good behavior and, and reassurance in order to assuage these allied concerns so that they don't you know, hedge against another possible Trumpian presidency. Because for the liberal international order to work and American leadership to prevail, it has to be able to look beyond just the four-year presidential cycle.
So President Biden rather famously announced America's return to the Paris Accords just hours after taking office, which, I mean, you can't get a more powerful signal about that sort of bridge building you were just talking about and the priority that he puts towards it. So in terms of global governance and foreign policy, what are the Biden administration's key issues and how have they started to get to work on those files? Uh, Yeah, it was a powerful signal indeed. But climate is not the number one priority for Biden, right? Number one priority for Biden, and he said it throughout the campaign, and he continues to say it in the documents that are being released, is the pandemic. He recognizes that nothing can happen until the COVID-19 pandemic is brought under control. Absent that, nothing else really is going to matter. Now, You know, the vaccine rollout is underway. It is promising. We're probably in, you know, a war of attrition now against uh, against the virus. So we can start looking maybe 12 months ahead to project what may happen. Once the pandemic is under control and the economic recovery is underway, there might be greater appetite within the United States in public opinion and in elite opinion to start looking to foreign policy. And, you know, this democratization, neo, neo-Trumanite foreign policy that I've been talking about. Climate change might enter the fray, might become centered once again in Biden's foreign policy. But at the same time, you know, you have to walk and chew gum. You also have to address the traditional security threats, the traditional geostrategic threats coming from China and Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in the world, you know, Joe Biden's inbox is filled with stuff right now, and it might be, you know, the most demanding set of foreign policy challenges we have seen in generations. Now, each one of these issues presents its own strategic problems, and there's no single response that can be made to, you know, anti-authoritarian policy or with regards to climate change. Of course, we know that. But, you know, I'm interested in how this all relates to the overarching guiding principle of rallying democratic countries. You know, it's a very, very interesting conceptual start. It's a very, very promising analytical hook for the United States and for other countries to to grab onto. Now, that may be a little bit of intellectualizing on my part. It might be a little bit of wishful thinking on my part. Uh, But I do think that it is something different. You know, it is a variation on the Obama presidency and his desire to reconstitute the liberal international order after what happened under George W. Bush. Biden recognizes the kind of enduring importance of many of those ideas, but is also fully aware that the conditions are quite different here in 2021. So in a previous podcast, you and I discussed the differing foreign policy perspectives of Mr. Biden as compared to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the prospects of a left-wing American foreign policy. Now, it's been about a year since we've had that conversation, uh, and I was just wondering about that idea under the Biden presidency. Do you see the Biden administration adopting elements of a progressive foreign policy from that progressive wing? And what are the current prospects of such an ideological shift in America's approach to the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, the Biden is walking a real fine line here because he recognizes that the old standards of liberal internationalism are 
but a little bit long in the tooth right now. And there's a lot of energy coming from the left progressive side of the Democratic Party. But, you know, he hasn't leaned especially far to the left in foreign policy, certainly not to the degree that he has been, he has leaned in domestic policy. So, you know, there are a couple of left-ish progressive elements to his foreign policy thus far. One is that anti-authoritarianism, which is, you know, a carbon copy from left-wing internationalist thought throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. In fact, a lot of his language about coalitions of democracies and balancing against authoritarian states that could have been spoken by Bernie Sanders during the primaries, and, and they were. You know, Biden also recognizes that the distinction between foreign and domestic is no longer a tenable one, as we have been given plenty of examples of uh, throughout the pandemic year that we have lived through. Now, that's kind of standard stuff. And if you've taken a class on globalization anytime between the early 1990s and now, that's almost uh, you know taken for granted. But, you know, Considering we just came out of four years of America first, this integrative notion of world politics seems radical and new, if not especially leftist. Now, Biden in his economic policy has embraced some interesting aspects of stuff spoken by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. There's an element of a progressive variant of economic nationalism. Biden has said things about regulatory reforms that would incentivize progressive economic behavior among trade partners. And in this way, using access to the American market as an opportunity to alter policies in other countries. The United States had been doing it for a couple of decades with regards to neoliberal policies. Why not more progressive economic policies? That kind of thing is in the offing. Uh, under Biden's presidency. But, you know, then you think about the not so leftish issues and uh, activities thus far. I mean, for one, Biden has not shown an especially anti-militaristic streak, which is, you know, uh, uh, one of the pillars of left-wing internationalism. He has hinted about spending reductions, about reforms to the authorizations for the use of military force in the Middle East and then the war on terror, but he has not been nearly as sharp edged as Sanders or Warren. Uh, you know, at the same time as he talks about, you know, coalitions of democracies, he also talks about supporting Saudi Arabian sovereignty, uh, which implies continued arms transfers to an authoritarian theocratic state. He might try to rationalize defense spending. He may try to thread the needle politically with regards to arms transfers, but I don't see any major changes in this. And that's decidedly not leftish at all. And, you know, one last thing here, and it's come up in the last couple of days, is the influx of migrants to the southern U.S. border. Now, Biden has not spoken anything out there that seems especially solidarity related with uh, these migrants making the way, way up north, right? If solidarity and universalism is a left-wing shibboleth, then, you know, he has certainly not passed that test. There's talk about democratic solidarity, but with regards to migrants coming up to the border, I think he has said, don't come, stay home. And so, in, in so doing, he has embraced 
a kind of nationalism that defies any sort of leftist characterization. Yeah, me being a Canadian this and all, I, I can't help bring in, or at least try and get the conversation moving towards Canadian perspective. And yeah, within the literature of Canadian political science, Canada's relationship to the U.S. is something that really stands as a fundamental element of Canadian governance. Like, you can't understand not even something like trade, but even political culture. You know, the Canadian-American relationship is a foundational structure to understanding Canada. And I'm just wondering, in your view... How did the America First Doctrine impact that relationship? And what are the prospects of Canadian-American relations moving forward under Biden? Well, the America First Doctrine freaked us out up here in north of the 49th parallel. It really undercut the need that Canada has for a drama-free relationship. When Trump said that, you know, from here on out, it's going to be America first, America first. And when he said he wanted to renegotiate NAFTA, this was no joke. This was an, you know, a, an existential concern for Canada. I mean, something like 70% of Canada's exports go to the United States. Access to the American market is the linchpin of Canadian prosperity, right? This was an all hands on deck situation when Trump started mucking around with the, the economic relationship. And so then, you know, the NAFTA renegotiations in 2017, 2018 was, you know, serious business. It was a whole of government and society affair. And I say this all the time, just to prove how serious it was, there were almost no partisan games being played in Canada regarding these renegotiations. Now, the story ended pretty well. The USMCA was updated in valuable and useful ways to serve as the, you know, the, the architecture of the North American trade relationship. And so good, right? America first didn't, you know, destroy Canada's economy. But other flashpoints like the tariffs on steel and aluminum and tin were were really deeply insulting in a lot of ways. And some of the language coming from Trump surrogates was needlessly aggressive and rude. I mean, think about Peter Navarro, trade advisor to Donald Trump. He said things about, uh, you know, why should we, you know, why should we concede anything to Canada just because they sent some soldiers to Afghanistan? I think he said, we should thank you every time a Canadian soldier shows up right, in extremely dismissive ways that, you know, really cut to the normative core of what the Canada-US relationship is all about. It also raises questions, right, what America First did. And it raised questions about, you know, the nature of the relationship that we want with the U.S. And, and here I think of my colleague, Dr. Laura McDonald, and an, a piece she wrote recently where she asks, do we really want America to be back? And the answer is, well, you know, her answer is not necessarily. Because do we really want to expose ourselves to the kind of political dynamics in the United States? Do we as Canadians want to be so vulnerable to the kinds of shifting political winds down there? You know, it, it's a difficult question. It's a tough question. And one, frankly, that is not new to Canada. It's been around since at least 1867. Now, the prospects of a better relations under Biden are much, much better because he's not looking to pick any fights with Canada. But Canada still has a lot of homework to do, 
right? The Canadian government, whether it is a Trudeau government or another government, is still going to have to hack its way through all of these Buy America provisions that have been built into Biden's uh, infrastructure packages and spending packages. And all difficulties remain, right? The protectionist impulses, the Keystone XL pipeline cancellation, some difficulties in Michigan with the blockage of pipelines there uh, that affect the Canada-US relationship. Canada still has to work through the United States in order to resolve the detention of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, which is uh, a drama that is picking up steam here in mid-March as we record this. Uh, there's a lot of action and activity going on. And while Biden may be a more accommodating president to work with, by no means is he going to be a pushover. So despite Donald Trump's many laments, you know, the Biden Democrat victory in November's election was unequivocally strong. But in many ways, the party that's behind Biden is more of a coalition of similar interests as opposed to being a wholly uniform machine. So in terms of Biden's approach to foreign policy, does the factionalism and the kind of internal divisions we see within the Democratic Party pose a threat or mark a potential roadblock to the administration's overall goals? Not really, at least not so far as I have been able to see. And I think that's because the left progressive wings of the Democratic Party aren't especially concerned with foreign policy, where I should say they're much, much more concerned with domestic policy than with uh, America's international policy. So, you know, what animates the left these days in 2021, it's income inequality, racial justice, perhaps democratic reforms, redistributive uh, aspects. Those are the things that get people out into the streets and protesting on the left side of the spectrum in the U.S. International relations, not so much. There may be, you know, quibbles about uh, a drone strike or some military action here and there, but it is not nearly the thing that gets people moving. Now, still, there's going to be pressure from the left of Biden about climate change that's going to keep the administration focused on that. And I think that's for the better. But for the most part, the Biden administration and his foreign policy cabinet is stacked with liberal centrists, all with roots in the Obama administration and the Hillary Clinton campaign. And there's really not a whole lot of space for leftist or progressive representation there. Biden recognizes that he needs to keep his, you know, the people to his left at the very least mollified in his foreign policy. So he's adapted some of the ideas that I spoke about a moment ago. Uh, but in terms of international relations, he looks a lot more like Obama than he does AOC. What about the Republicans, though? Because there was a hope that when President Trump was defeated, that the party would move on and perhaps there'd be a return to the politics of good faith. But we really haven't seen that. So I'm wondering if, you know, that politics of bad faith might get in the way of Biden's global mandate. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've already seen it uh, regarding the COVID relief package that was passed not long ago. Certification of the election results, prosecution of the Capitol Hill insurrectionists, which is a national security issue unto itself. More recently, Republicans have begun to sniff out opportunities for 
attacking Biden at the southern border with the with regards to the northbound migrations we have seen picking up steam. And so they Republicans still can play spoiler in many, many ways. They're still in thrall to the Trump idea. And that is not going to go away anytime soon, at least I don't think. Now, what does that mean in terms of foreign policy? I think it is highly unlikely that we're going to see in any way congressional cooperation on foreign affairs. I don't expect to see major treaties being put through to the Senate that need supermajority support there. And we'll see a whole lot of sniping from you know, from the Trumpians in the Senate who are looking to make a name for themselves in advance of 2024. That's the partisan end of things. Politically, or at least in a political science sense, what we might expect to see is greater centralization of foreign policy in the White House, something that has been picking up steam since the Eisenhower administration. We'll see Biden conducting foreign policy more and more through executive orders. I mean, just think of the flurry of executive orders he signed within you know, minutes of taking the oath of office back in January. More executive orders corresponds with greater centralization of power in the presidency. And that, that's a legacy that is going to outlive the Biden administration. And it is going to be a gift given to whoever comes next. So for the last question in this line of questioning, I'm going to ask for a prediction. It's a little unfair, but to put our thinking caps and think of the future, but I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. Because when Donald Trump took office and heralded you know, America first as a doctrine on Inauguration Day, there was a feeling that things were going to kind of get a little bad, globally speaking. If you could have predicted how many steps backward would have been taken in just four years before a lot of people from the outside looking in, America First was going to set back the liberal international order, and lo and behold, it did. Now, four years on from today, after four years of a Biden-Harris administration, what do you think the global community and the liberal international order will look like? Man, let me let me hold the hold the envelope to my forehead and make my predictions here. And if you get that joke, you are an old man. My prediction here: uh, the liberal international order is still going to stand. That's not a huge prediction, but it's going to be a lot smaller. It's going to look a lot smaller. It's probably going to feel a whole lot smaller. You know, the members in good standing will be fewer, but perhaps they might be a little bit more effective, maybe perhaps more robust, if not necessarily much more capable. Because after all, there's still an appetite for global cooperation on a whole suite of issues in global governance. But it's going to be a whole lot more difficult for the liberal international order to be as expansive as it once was. Certainly not nearly as expansive as people had hoped it would be in the 1990s. Now, is a long time between now and four years from now. And a whole lot depends on what happens with the populist leaders that still hold office in Britain, in Brazil, in Hungary, and elsewhere. A lot depends on what happens in China over the next couple of years and what happens with the post-pandemic recovery in the United States. Now, that's my kind of wishy-washy prognostication about the liberal international order. Here's one that I think is a little bit more concrete. In four years, we're not going to see Joe Biden running for a second term. 
I think we're going to see Vice President Kamala Harris as the Democratic nominee. I think Biden's going to take a step back because he recognizes that he is a uh, transitional president, even though he's doing pretty remarkable things in his first 60 days here. But he's likely to hand things off to a younger generation of Democrats. And Kamala Harris is going to be the third act in the kind of Obama-Biden-Harris presidential drama. Now, like Obama and Biden, she is a liberal centrist. Yeah, she has some progressive sympathies, but basically her politics tack to the liberal center in international affairs. Now, she doesn't have the same depth of experience as Biden has coming in, but she has made a point of being at the foreign policy table. She has liberal internationalist proclivities. She does have some background in cybersecurity issues and human rights. And she is a, you know, a staunch supporter of the international rule of law, which makes her a perfect you know, backup quarterback to Joe Biden, right? The Aaron Rodgers to the Brett Favre, so to speak, if I can put it in those terms. And in that regard, the table is set for not just an eight-year Biden, not an eight-year Biden presidency, but a four-year Biden and then perhaps an eight-year Kamala Harris presidency, which would, if that comes to pass, would mark a remarkable period of kind of presidential stability after four years of Donald Trump. Thinking ahead, that's going to be some times. It's going to be some times. We're going to find out. And if I'm wrong, well... Sue me. <laughs> we'll hunt you down and we'll let you know. Thank you very much. <laughs> so lastly, you know, I'm just interested in what you've been working on lately. Tell us about your work. How's the pandemic been treating you and, and the work that you're doing? Uh, well, the pandemic has been treating me personally not too bad. I'm one of the, your professors are maybe the least essential workers out there, right? When the university closed down a year ago, students and professors were sent home, which is remarkable when students and teachers are not essential workers at an institution of higher learning. But I digress. What am I working on now? I'm working to make it to the end of term. <laughs> We're in mid-March at this point, which is, you know, the most demanding time of year for my undergraduate students. So I try to give them all the love and care and attention that I have. And I got some great work being done by some of my undergraduate thesis students on Canadian foreign policy and Middle Eastern policy. My fourth year seminar on transatlantic defense issues is chock full of ideas for term papers. And when I'm not you know, giving my students all my love and care and attention. I am working on a paper about teaching world politics in an age of crisis. I like to teach my world politics classes, especially my first year class, as a big history of right now. But there's some real pedagogical difficulties that come with teaching this topic to first year students when the world has been turned upside down and is in such flux. So I'm trying to think through the kind of intellectual, pedagogical, and disciplinary questions that IR professors have to face when trying to do something that I am trying to do. It's, it's not easy, and it really makes you rethink some of the foundations of how you approach the classroom. And, and all of this is taking place in the context of the lead up to the International Studies Association Conference in early April. Now, that's the biggest event on the calendar for IR scholars, and usually it's held in fun places. Last year, it was supposed to be in Honolulu, but, you know, that got canceled. 
it's always a big to-do. This time around, it's all online, and we are going to see what that looks like. So that's what I'm up to these days. Excellent. Sounds like fun times. I also was quite disappointed when that Hawaii conference was canceled because I had sort of the lofty ambition of going, that I didn't actually prepare something, but you know, it seemed like it would be <laughs> great. I had been looking forward to that for 10 years. Oh, God. When I was when I was a, a grad student, in, you know, so in 2010, they released the schedule of conferences 10 years in advance. And my my friends and I, we would look to 2020 Honolulu as this as as this mirage in the distance that, you know, we're all going to hang out in Honolulu 10 years from now. And it was this it was this kind of lodestar. This is what I'm working towards. It's it's emblematic of so many things. And then it gets canceled by the time that I'm able to maybe get there. But, you know, if that's the worst thing that happened to me, then I have made it through this year of the pandemic in okay shape. I have faith someday you will attend a luau. It'll, it'll happen. I'm looking forward to the skirts and the whole deal. It's going to be amazing. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poli sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poli dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.